Um, we do have a Bible study in Ezekiel. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 9, and we'll continue there. And Father, we do ask that you bless this time as we study your word. And Lord, even though it's going over uh, computers and uh, maybe tablets and smartphones or whatever, uh, we're thankful that we can meet together in that way. And I pray for those who are tuned in to uh, tonight that you would bless the study, that, Lord, that you would just stir our hearts. We need to be in your word. Uh, we need to take in these things that are written for us for our profit and benefit and blessing. And as we go through these chapters, there's something here for us. There's uh, the admonitions and the warnings and, uh, Lord, just the lessons that are there for us to take in so that we may just experience that abundant life that you have for us. So bless this time in the study of your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we head into chapter 9 of Ezekiel, keep in mind that Ezekiel, the prophet, that he is in captivity during this time. And it's not that far from the destruction of Jerusalem that is going to take place. When Nebuchadnezzar comes in for the third time into Jerusalem, the second time, the second deportation taken place in 597 B.C. That's where Ezekiel was taken off. He's among the captives. And as we even saw last time in chapter 8, that he's sitting with some of the elders there. And he begins to have this vision. He uh, is taken by the Spirit. As uh, we read that, that the Spirit uh, lifted me up between earth and heaven in chapter 8, and he's having this vision of Jerusalem. Now, he's already spoken about how Jerusalem is going to be sieged. That would happen after he, he speaks here, after uh, the second deportation and the third and final uh, entrance into Jerusalem by Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar to siege the city. He talks about the severity of judgment as Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. And he also talks about the judgment that's going to come upon the idols that were in the land. Keep in mind that the reason that they go off into captivity and the reason for the destruction of Jerusalem, number one, is because their refusal to turn back to the Lord. They have been involved in idol worship. Um, they were involved in all kinds of abominations that we are going to continue to see in Ezekiel. It was more than they were bowing down to an idol. It led to other things, immorality, being violent, ripping each other off forsaken the Lord, following the dictates of their own hearts, refusing to repent from those things, breaking the covenant of God, and also rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar, as you recall that Jeremiah, that he said to Zedekiah, the last king of, of Judah, he said, don't rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. If you just submit to him, uh, you're going to be under his power, but the city's going to be spared. But if you rebel against him, then there's going to be great destruction, devastation, and death like you've never seen before. And that's exactly what happened is Zedekiah rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And so we see the severity of the judgment. We see how Jerusalem is um, going to experience that judgment as well. And then also the abominations, the idols that were in the temple. And that's what he saw in chapter 8. He saw that there were the idols there in the place that was dedicated to God. And we know that there were the leaders that were there that were promoting that false worship. Matter of fact, in the last chapter, in chapter 8, we saw that there were uh, in the inner court, the place where the priests would minister, 
Instead of facing the Holy of Holies, they were facing towards the east, and they were worshiping the sun god. And the inner court was the place where the sacrifices were to be done. They should have been crying out for God's mercy and forgiveness. That was the place where that was, uh, you know, where the sacrifices took place. And, and yet they were rebelling against all that, rebelling against the Lord, and worshiping the sun god. So in chapter 9, as we continue, we're going to see that judgment is still being pronounced. The severity of the judgment has been given. um, The reason for the judgment. And now we're going to see individuals that are going to be under the judgment as Ezekiel continues with this vision. In chapter 9 of Ezekiel, we read, Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side, and they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now, as we read this, it talks about a man, but these are angelic beings that are coming to execute God's judgment upon Judah and Jerusalem. And they each have a battle axe, six angelic uh, beings that are mentioned here. And then one of them had an inkhorn. We will see what that's going to be used for. And it's interesting that angels are used in the judgment of God oftentimes. We saw that in the book of Isaiah when the Assyrians surrounded Jerusalem were going to destroy Jerusalem. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. And then an angel came and destroyed one angel, came and destroyed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. We know that uh, in the book of Revelation, in the tribulation period, we're going to read about how angels are used as God will pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejected world. And in that, uh, after the seventh seal is opened up, seven angels are going to stand up with trumpets, and they're going to blow those trumpets, as many of you know, going through the book of Revelation. And as they blow those trumpets, there's judgment that comes upon the earth. And then the seventh angel that blows his trumpet, then seven more angels will stand up with bowls and pour out wrath upon a Christ-rejected world. So angels are used in the judgment of God, just as we are seeing here as judgment is coming against Jerusalem. And we read in verse 3, Now the glory of God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple, and he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. So as we read verse 3, what we're going to read about here is, and then as we go into chapter 10, is that the glory of God is going to depart from the temple. Uh, The glory of God between the cherub. Remember that when Moses was told to make the tabernacle and the furnishings, that in the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant. It was just a box with a lid on top of it with the cherubim and the mercy seat between the wings. And that's where the high priest would go in once a year to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat to make atonement for the nation. And the Lord told Moses, I'll dwell between the cherubim. It's where the tangible presence of God was. And as we know that that took place in the tabernacle, it would be during the days of the judges. As you read the book of Judges, it's, uh, it's again, a book where God's people were rebelling against him. Uh, they were, uh, you know, worshiping the Canaanite gods. And then they would find themselves under bondage towards the end of the days of the judges, which is 400 years that they did that. 
that in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the children of Israel are doing battle against the Philistines. And many of you, you're familiar with that chapter, that one of them, as they were defeated by the Philistines, that they said, let's get the Ark of the Covenant and let's bring it out and we'll defeat the Philistines. Well, they didn't defeat the Philistines. The Philistines uh, had a, a great victory. They captured the Ark of the Covenant. There was a great slaughter. And a man of Benjamin came running back to, to Shiloh, I believe, where Eli was, the high priest. And it's interesting, when you read that story, the man of Benjamin, some have suggested that perhaps that was Saul. We don't know for sure, but Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Saul, who would just right after that soon become uh, the first king of Israel. But Eli was a high priest. His two sons were wicked. And this man of Benjamin comes and says to Eli, who was an elderly man, that the Ark of the Covenant has been captured and your two sons have been killed. And Eli fell over. He, he was so overtaken by the news. He fell over dead. And then his daughter-in-law gave birth to a son, and they named him Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. The glory has departed. The Ark of the Covenant has been captured. And, of course, the Ark would eventually come back. Well, over time, David would become the king, and uh, he was a man after God's own heart. And then Solomon built the first temple. And when you read First Kings and Second Chronicles, when Solomon dedicated the temple, it tells us that the glory of the Lord was so manifested so brightly and so gloriously that the priests had to stop ministering. It was a glorious time in their history, uh, great peace and prosperity and power uh, at that time as the first uh, temple was dedicated. Now, 400 years later, we see that that temple that was dedicated to the Lord has been given over to idols. And as we read this, we see the glory of God is going to depart because God will not share his glory with any man, Isaiah says, any woman or any idol. And as we continue reading here in verse 4, that as he, in verse 3, the man clothed with linen who had the writer's ink cord uh, at his side, and the Lord, verse 4, said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. Uh, God was to mark those who were still faithful to him, and God would spare them in his judgment. Uh, interesting here is they would be marked or they would be sealed. The word mark is believed not to really be a word, but uh, the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet uh, in the ancient Hebrew writing, this was in the shape actually of a cross. And it reminds me also as the final judgment will come on a Christ-rejected world in the tribulation period. In Revelation chapter 9, or chapter 7, we read about the 144,000 that are, that are sealed by God, uh, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. They have a special ministry that's to go out and to evangelize. But it's also interesting that as we read in chapter 9 of the book of Revelation, in the fifth trumpet that is blown, these demons, uh, creatures, come out of the bombless pit and they begin to torment men, except those who have the seal of God on their foreheads. And it could mean one of two things. It could mean that the 144,000 are protected because they're sealed by God. But it also could mean those who are the tribulation saints that are sealed by God as well. Because we know that as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, and let me read it to you. 
that we as Christians, the church, that the Holy Spirit, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, and then verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, uh, the guarantee of our inheritance. It's a sign of ownership. We belong to the Lord and until the redemption of the purchased possession. We're going to be redeemed in that final, you know, when we go take our last breath here uh, and close our eyes or in the rapture of the church, we're going to go home to be with the Lord. Uh, so it's, it's that word seal is a very strong word. Uh, and we also know that in Second Corinthians that twice we are told that we uh, are sealed uh, by God. Let me read it to you in Second Corinthians chapter 5. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And then in chapter 1, Paul had written to them, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So again, that word seal is very, very important. So the thought here is, is the, those who are, are sealed by God, belong to God, the faithful remnant, uh, you know, are going to be marked in the tribulation period, that those who belong to the Lord, at least 144,000, does it also include the tribulation saints? Because in the fifth seal, what we're going to see is that the scorpion-like, demon-like creatures that come out of the bottomless pit are going to torture men for five months. So it very well could mean those who are tribulation saints, uh, as we know that we're sealed by God, the church. Uh, That's the, the glorious promise for us. Uh, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, That word seal, we see it again in another time in the opposite meaning in that when Jesus Christ comes back in the second coming, an angel is going to come and he's going to bound up Satan, throw him into the bottomless pit for a thousand years during the millennium reign. And it says that the bottomless pit is sealed. There's no way that Satan is going to get out. So that's a very strong word, that word sealed. But here this inkhorn uh, is going to be used to mark those who belong to the Lord. And uh, you, you see the analogies in Scripture like the wheat and the tares and the uh, parable that we saw in Matthew's Gospel, the dragnet, the good fish, and, and the others that were separated. And here the separation has taken place. The sheep and the goats is another analogy. But let's continue to read in verse 5. To the others he said in my hearing, Go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone who whom is the mark and begin uh, and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple, and then he said to them, Defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain, go out, and they went out and killed in the city. So it was that while they were killing them, I was left alone. And I fell on my face and cried out and said, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel and pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? So the others would be judged that weren't marked uh, as these angels followed with uh, the ink horn. And uh, if they weren't marked, they ended up being under the judgment. Uh, Those who are not sealed by God, uh, we know uh, by the Holy Spirit of promise, 
will one day stand before the great white throne judgment. Listen, that's very real. And that's going to come. After the millennium reign, the heavens and the earth, as we now know, are going to go up in a fervent heat. Uh, There will be no place found for them, as John the Revelator writes in chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. And in the great white throne judgment, the unrighteous dead will be resurrected at that time. It's called the second resurrection. And then they will be judged and cast into outer darkness. Uh, We will not stand at the great white throne judgment as believers. We will stand at the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ. We will reward it. Uh, for what we've done for Christ. There's rewards to be given to you and to me, and that's a study for another time. And we'll talk more about it as we continue through Matthew, because Jesus is going to talk about it. But as we read this, you know, uh, Ezekiel's just overwhelmed by this, this vision. And it starts in his sanctuary. He says, you know, start in the sanctuary and with the elders and the leaders. And Ezekiel's going, oh, what's going to happen to the remnant of Israel, but we finish the chapter as we read. Then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great, and the land is full of bloodshed, and the city full of perversity. So there was violence in the land, the, the sin was great. They were burning their own children in the arms of Moloch. Uh, the city was full of perversity, for they say the Lord has forsaken the land. And the Lord does not see. I find that interesting here in verse 9. That those who had done wickedly, seeing the bloodshed that was great, and seeing now things that, that are happening here, the warnings of the prophets, they, yet they refuse to repent. And we also read about that in the tribulation period as the trumpet judgments are coming. And, you know, it's terrible what is happening. They refuse to repent is what the scripture says. They refuse to give themselves over to, to the Lord. And the Lord's wanting them to repent, but they refuse to do that. And as we read in verse 10, As for me also, my eye will neither spare nor will I have pity, but I will recompense their deeds on their own Head And just then the man clothed with linen who had the inkhorn at his side reported back and said, I have done as you commanded me. You know, one of the things as we finish this chapter here, chapter 9, that it reminds me of, and I want to bring it home a little bit closer for you and for me, but it reminds me of those who are in disobedience. They are in sin, and then when they begin to experience the consequences of sin, because listen, that God is not mocked, don't be deceived. Whatever a man sows, so shall he reap. And if you are sowing into the flesh of the flesh, you'll reap corruption. If you sow to the spirit of the spirit, you'll reap to everlasting life. But there are consequences of sin. And, and sometimes I'll talk to somebody, and perhaps you do as well, that they're involved in sin, they're involved in immorality or dishonesty or whatever it may be. And then as they experience the consequences, they'll say, well, how could God let this happen? Well, God didn't want it to happen. And that's why he tells us that this is what you're to do. Stay away from sin, walk in my ways, and, be, and, and as you walk in my ways, there's safety and security. And you're going to be sowing unto the Spirit, and of the Spirit you'll reap to everlasting life. But if you continue in sin, you're going to go down a road you don't want to go down. And and people say, well, why did God allow this to happen? You chose to rebel against the Lord. So what I'm praying and hoping, if anyone's listening here tonight, and God's dealing with you with sin, he, 
he's doing that because he loves you and he doesn't want you to get it hurt. And if you continue down that road of sin and carnality, then you're going to experience consequences, repercussions that you don't want to. There's going to be, you know, uh, a harvest that's going to come up in, in the seeds that you're sowing to the flesh. And you're going to, to reap into, you know, corruption and, and heartache and difficulty and pain. And the Lord is saying, repent, turn back to him, follow after him. He loves you. He doesn't want you to get hurt. He doesn't want you to continue in sin. So now as we move into chapter 10, we're going to see that the glory of God is going to depart from the temple. And I look, and there was in the firmament, verse 1, that above the head of the cherubim, remember the cherubim were angelic beings that are the guardians of the throne of God. And we saw them and talked about them in chapter 1. There appeared something like a sapphire stone having the appearance of the likeness of a throne. And he spoke to the man clothed with linen and said, Go in among the wheels under the cherub. Fill your hands with coals of fire and from among the cherubim and scattered them over the city. And he went in as I watched. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in and the cloud filled the inner court. Verse 4, And then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple. And the house was filled with the cloud. And the court was filled with the brightness of the Lord's glory. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard even in the outer court like the voice of the Almighty when he speaks. So here God, uh, he's not going to continue dwelling in a place where this sanctuary is polluted and defiled by idols that they have brought in. And as we read about the burning coals dumped over the city, it's speaking of judgment. And, and they would, you know, uh, see the, the judgment. Ezekiel would see the glory of God departing. And the glory passed over the threshold of the temple, or that is the doorway of the temple. And, and God didn't want to go, but he's forced to go. And the chariot throne is on the move, and it moves, it, it makes this thunderous sound. And in verse 6 of the chapter, then it happened when he commanded the man clothed in linen, saying, Take fire from among the wheels, from among the cherubim, that he went in and stood beside the wheels. And the cherub stretched out his hand from among the cherubim to the fire that was among the cherubim and took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed with linen who took it and went out. So the judgment of God would come to Jerusalem. Uh, speaking about burning the Babylonians, would come, and I believe it's a reference to how they would come and burn Jerusalem uh, with fire. And then in verse 8, And the cherubim appeared to have the form of a man's hand under their wings. And then I looked, and there were four wheels by the cherubim, one wheel by a cherub, and another wheel each by other cherub. The wheels appeared to have the color of a burl stone. As for their appearance, verse 10, all four looked alike, as if it were a wheel in the middle of the wheel. And when they went, they went toward um, any of their four directions. They did not turn aside when they went, but followed the direction the head was facing. They did not turn aside when they went. And we saw this in chapter 1. And then verse 12, their whole body with their backs, their hands, their wings, and their wheels had 
had that the four had were full of eyes all around. As for the wheels, they were called in my hearing wheel. So again, earlier in Ezekiel, Ezekiel describing the cherub, the cherubims, these angelic beings in the wheels. But there's some additional information. He tells us that the cherub was full of eyes like the wheels, again, showing that God sees all. He sees the sin of Judah. They thought God doesn't see us. That's the mistake that some people make today. They think, well, you know, I'm getting away. Nothing's happening. There's no consequences to my rebellion or sin or just living after myself. Listen, God sees all. Nothing is hidden from him. He sees all. And, and uh, we need to always remember that. Uh, and part of living in the fear of the Lord is knowing that it's not an unhealthy terror, but realizing the Lord sees all. I, I'm not getting away with anything. And Lord, I don't want to do anything to hurt you. I don't want to do anything in rebellion to you because you do see. And so here is, is, is speaking about this. Um, you know, God sees all. He saw the sins of Judah, what was going on. But also verse 13, he heard in his ears the wheels called wheels. Uh, the, or uh, in other words, whirling wheels, which means rolling or revolving. And what it's indicating here is that God's throne chariot is on the move now. And God's glory is about ready to depart the temple and Jerusalem. In verse 14, each one had the four faces. The first face like the face of a cherub. The second face of the face of a man. The third, the face of a lion. And the fourth, the face of an eagle. So these cherubim described as having four faces, like uh, in chapter 1 told to us, a lion, an ox, a man, an eagle, very similar to what we see in the four living creatures in the vision John had in Revelation chapter 4. But here it's interesting that there's a little difference. The difference is the face of a cherub and uh, instead of an ox. Could it be that the cherub, um, that it's similar to an ox? Cherubs were servants uh, as ox are the servant animal. We don't know for sure, but the difference is noted there. In verse 15, And the cherubim were lifted up. This was the living creature I saw by the river Chapar. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted their wings to mount up from the earth, the same wheels also did not turn uh, from beside them. And we continue reading in verse 17, When the cherubim stood still, then the wheels stood still. And when one was lifted up, the other lifted itself up, for the spirit of the living creature was in them. And then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. And when they went out, the wheels were beside them. And they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house, and the glory of God of Israel was above them. And this is the living creature I saw under the God of Israel by the river Chabar, and I knew that they were cherubim. Verse 21, each one had four faces, each one four wings, and the likeness of the hands of a man was under their wings, and the likeness of their faces was the same as the faces which I have seen by the river Chabar. Their appearances and their persons, they each went straight forward. So it was time for God's glory to depart. It stopped at the east gate, the east gate, um, that uh, would face the Mount of Olives. Uh, it's the same gate that Jesus is going to come back in the second coming of Jesus Christ 
We're going to see later in Ezekiel that there's going to be a prophecy that that gate's going to be sealed until the Lord comes back. If you go to Jerusalem today, the east gate is sealed right now. Pretty amazing. And um, the east gate uh, is um, mentioned here. And, and uh, we're going to see as we go into chapter 11, it will be mentioned as well. But what we're seeing here is that it's time for God's glory to depart and they, you know, it stopped at the east gate. God's glory goes from the threshold, uh, the entrance of the temple, um, to above the cherub, and then mounting on God's throne chariot to ride out Jerusalem through the east gate. And as we look at this, we continue in chapter 11. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the Lord's house, which faces eastward. And there at the door of the gate were 25 men among whom I saw Jehazaniah, the son of Azar, Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, princess of the people. In verse 2, And he said to me, Son of man, these are men who devise iniquity and give wicked counsel in this city, who say the time is not near to build houses. This city is the cauldron, and we are the meat. A couple of things here. The glory of God is departing. And what I pray for us here at Calvary Chapel, that the glory of God would never depart because we get involved in worldly things or we get involved in worldly philosophy. And I think that most of us that are listening tonight, that we know that there at one time, even whole denominations, that they preached the gospel. It was a mighty movement of God when they first began. And, and all of a sudden, over the years, a, a couple generations Ago, they were being used of God, stood on the truth of God's word, on righteousness, and now they've abandoned that. And, and the glory of God has departed. And they're involved in all kinds of false teaching and not standing on the gospel, not standing on biblical morality. We, we know that to be true. And, and, and it breaks our hearts when we see that. And I pray that never happens to us here at Calvary Chapel, that we put our trust in things, or we put our trust in man, or that which is false. You know, may we always stand on the truth of God's word, and may we always stand on the gospel message. And here the glory of God is departing, and here are 25 men that we just read about that are, you know, facing east towards the Kidron Valley, the Mount of Olives. They're at the eastern gate. Now, these are not the same 25 men in chapter 8 that was mentioned worshiping the sun god. These are 25 men or elders who give wicked counsel to the people. The gate was the traditional place where the leaders and the elders would give counsel and oversee legal matters and administer justice, or at least that's what they were supposed to do. These men are being called wicked, and the elders were saying, it's time to build houses. Forget these prophets, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, that are saying that judgment is going to come to Jerusalem. Hey, we're like meat in a pot. We're protected is what we are. You recall in Jeremiah, they were saying the temple, the temple. Judgment isn't going to come because we got this mighty temple. It was David that would write in the Psalms that some trust in horses, some in chariots, but we will call in the name of the Lord. And not only do I pray that the glory doesn't depart from here, that is, as we honor the Lord and as we stand on the gospel and the truth of his word and come every week, every time we come here and gather, that we would humble ourselves, that we would walk in the fear of God, 
that we would reverence him, that, you know, we would understand that he is holy and, and he alone is Lord. I pray for us uh, that we wouldn't uh, put our trust into buildings or budgets or how many people are coming or how popular that we are. But our trust is in the Lord alone. And they had forsaken the Lord. And, and we're going to see that as we continue on what their attitude was. And in verse 4, therefore prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man, nothing's going to happen to us. We're like meat in the, in the pot. We're protected in the cauldron. But then the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, verse 5, and said, Speak, thus says the Lord. You shall have said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. He knows our hearts, and he knows our minds. He knows our thoughts. He knew their thoughts. So Ezekiel's going to prophesy against them, verse 6. You have multiplied your slain in this city, and you have filled the streets with the slain. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain, whom you have laid in its midst, they are the meat. And this city is the cauldron, but I shall bring you out of the midst of it. You have feared the sword, and I will bring a sword upon you, says the Lord God. And I will bring you out of its midst and deliver you into the hands of strangers and execute judgment on you. And you shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. That phrase again. You're going to know that I am the Lord when all this judgment, and that was the purpose of them, God just not destroying his people, but that they would come to realize that he is the Lord, that he's the one that gave them this land, that he's truly the God. Their idols are not going to help them at all. And this city shall not be your cauldron, verse 11, nor shall you, you be the meat in its midst. I will judge you at the border of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord, for I have not walked, uh, for you have not walked in my statutes, nor execute my judgments but have done according to the customs of the Gentiles, which are all around you. And verse 13, now it happened while I was prophesying that Pelatiah, uh, the son of Benaiah, died. Then I fell on my face and cried with a loud voice and said, Oh, Lord God, will you make a complete end of the remnant of Israel? A couple things here. The judgment's going to come upon you. The, the city thought that, that, that you know, we're going to be protected. You see, only God can protect us. And don't look for other things to be your ultimate protection and strength. And as we see here, this one, Petaltiah, dropped dead, slain in the spirit, literally, is what I see the example of that. And he was one that mocked God in God's word. So once again, Ezekiel pleads for God's mercy. And that's the point I want to bring up. We see that with Isaiah. We see it with Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet. And we see it with Ezekiel. When judgment was coming upon God's people, they were heartbroken. They were overwhelmed. Isaiah wept. Uh, Jeremiah wept. Ezekiel, he's going, oh, Lord, the remnant of Israel. He's overwhelmed. He falls on his face. They're not going, get them, God. They're not going, they deserve it. You know, we warned them, and they didn't pay any attention. And we've had difficult ministries because of that. No, they were overwhelmed. Their hearts were broken. Because they were sharing the heart of God. His heart was broken in having to do this. And we're going to see later in Ezekiel that Ezekiel is going to share the heart of God who says, I don't delight in judging the wicked. He didn't delight in it. But 
Judgment was coming, and, and they were overwhelmed by it. And I pray as we think about those who will stand before the great white throne judgment someday because of their rejection of God, that those who perhaps, if we are truly near the rapture of the church and the tribulation period that's going to begin, that those who are going to go through it, that our hearts would break, and it would stir our hearts to say, Lord, I want to be light, and I want to be true to others. I want to be used as a voice of truth in the days in which we're in and be praying for those people that are linked to us in our lives that we wouldn't have the mindset of, oh, God, I can't wait till you judge this world and judge those people and this group and that and all of this. No, that, that we would be, just as we think about it, that we would weep in our hearts what is happening because people have rejected the Lord. And God will judge sin. And just as he's doing it here and we continue But there's a promise here that God gives to Israel, just as he did through Isaiah and Jeremiah. And again, verse 14, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, your brethren, your relatives, your countrymen, and all the house of Israel in its entirety are those about whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Get far away from the Lord. This land has been given to us as a possession. Uh, Listen. uh, uh, to the the arrogance that we just read, uh, get far from the Lord. The land's been given to us. The arrogance, the boldness. This is our land. We don't need God. You know that concerns me about our own country. We like to to you know we've had the saying, "In God we trust," or "God bless America." Well, God has blessed America, but what we're seeing spiritually more and more is that we're telling God we don't want you we're a great nation we don't need you we don't need you in our government we don't need you in our courts we don't need you in our schools we don't want you we don't want the Ten Commandments we don't want your word and that's what we're seeing more and more and that concerns me as they were saying you know we don't need you Lord Um, you know this is our land and God had said to them I gave you this land I gave you this land. I gave you this inheritance. But yet they're saying, go away. You know, go away. And it's sad as we read this. This land has been given to us as a possession. Get far from the Lord. And that's what we're doing as a country. And I believe that's why I say that the hope for our nation is a spiritual awakening. That's the hope of our nation. Because if we get further away from the Lord and we're saying, we don't need you, Lord, then we're going to see that God's hand of protection is going to be lifted and uh, it's not going to be good. It's not good for any country that rejects the Lord. And so we see that's what they were saying. In verse 16, Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, Although I have cast them far off among the Gentiles, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet I shall be a little sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. I'm not going to completely wipe them out. I will have a remnant, and they will worship me in their hearts, in the sanctuary of their hearts. And I believe that here Ezekiel is now looking through time, and he's speaking about you know, what is yet ahead, as in verse 17, Therefore say, Thus says the Lord, I will gather you from the peoples, assemble you from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. We saw a partial fulfillment as they would come back from Babylon, uh, after the 70 years of captivity, there was a partial fulfillment in 1948 after being out of the homeland. 
For 2,000 years, they've come back and they continue to come back. Matter of fact, during this pandemic, I know that I mentioned this, but I want to mention it again. There was no travel to Israel. The only travel that was is, is there at, at Newark, New Jersey. You know, uh, They were taking flights, those Jews from New York and the East Coast saying, we want to go back to Israel, and the planes were full. People are still, uh, that the last I knew, over 250,000 Jews returning in 2020 back to Israel, going back home. And so more coming back into Israel, we'll see the ultimate fulfillment when the Jews come in at the end of the tribulation period and the second coming of Jesus Christ and the restoration of Israel takes place. So we're, we're seeing some incredible things happen right before our eyes, and we'll talk more about it when we get to Ezekiel 36 and 37, how they're going to come back into the land and plant the land and, and uh, build the ancient cities again. And it's absolutely incredible prophecy. But God's going to restore Israel, and it is going to take place. And then in verse uh, uh, 18, as we, we read it, uh, and they will go there, and they will take away uh, all its detestables. They come back to the land, the things, and an abomination from there. Then I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh. And they will walk in my statues, and keep my judgments, and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Does this sound familiar? It sounds familiar to Jeremiah you know, 33, the new covenant that is uh, given. Jeremiah said the time's going to come when there's going to be a new covenant. No longer is the law going to be written on the tablets of stone, but it's going to be written on the tablets of your heart. You're going to have a new heart and this new covenant, a new relationship with the Lord. I will be their God. They will know me. Very similar here. So talking about when that's going to happen again that there's going to be spiritual renewal and revival that will take place. Paul writes about it in the book of Romans in chapter 11 and says, In that day all of Israel shall be saved. And so we're looking at that which is yet future that Ezekiel begins to speak about here. And then in verse 20, they will, as I read to you, they'll walk in my statues, verse 21. But as for those whose hearts followed the desires of their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. So the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of God of Israel was high above them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. A very sad vision here as the glory of God has left Jerusalem. And then the Spirit took me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God to Chaldea, to those in captivity. And the vision that I have seen went up from me. So I spoke to those in captivity all the things that the Lord had shown me. So, Father, I pray that as we've gone over these chapters, that it really shows us, Lord, how sin hurts. It hurt a nation. It hurt a people. And we know that you're going to judge sin. But we can come tonight and we can rejoice because we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise because we come to the cross at Calvary where Jesus took that judgment upon himself for you and for me. And that's the gospel message. And if anyone's listening tonight that you've never come to the gospel, that's your hope. That's the good news for you. That Jesus Christ died for your sins on the cross and took the judgment that you deserve upon himself. 
And, and he died on that cross for you. And then he was put into a grave and he rose again after three days. And the Bible says that as you repent and turn to Jesus and ask for forgiveness and call on the name of Jesus, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. He is your salvation. Come to him if you've never done that. That is the hope of any man or any woman, the gospel. It is a power of God to salvation to whoever believes. There's power in the gospel to save. You can't save yourself or church or trying to be good. It is through Jesus Christ alone surrendering your life to him. You can do that. If this means anything to anyone tonight, you pray this prayer. That Jesus, I come and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me, that you rose again, and I ask that you forgive me, and that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for taking the judgment of sin upon yourself and making atonement for my sin, and for this new beginning, and for a new heart, and a new relationship with the Father, that I can cry out, Abba, Father that I may know you and walk with you all the days of my life in Jesus' name. And Father, for all of us, may we just keep our eyes on you. And Lord, may we walk with you and enjoy you in every way, walking in your ways. And Lord, I pray you bless everyone here till we meet again in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, God bless you. Hope to see you on Sundays. We'll be in Matthew chapter 16. Have a great rest of the week. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom.